Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Khalil Bendeep is away. Gaza has been under siege for nearly 10 years now. In 2012, the United Nations declared the Gaza Strip will not have the resources for human survival by the year 2020. But just recently, Robert Piper, the UN Coordinator for Humanitarian Aid and Development Activities in the Occupied Territories, described Gaza as currently, quote, unlivable. To understand the conditions in Gaza and the political context surrounding the deteriorating humanitarian situation, Vomina's Mira Nabulsi speaks with Jihad Abu Salim, a Palestinian from Gaza and a doctoral student in history at New York University. Later in the program, we'll bring back our conversation with British-Palestinian fiction author Selma Dabba about her novel, Out of It, which focuses on the internal dynamics of a family in Gaza during wartime, as well as on the division within Palestinian society. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Mirna Abulsim. Gaza has been under siege for nearly 10 years now. In the year 2012, the United Nations declared the Gaza Strip will be unlivable by the year 2020. But just last week, on July 11th, a humanitarian organization released a new report titled Gaza 10 Years Later, in which it said that conditions in Gaza are deteriorating faster and further than the predictions made in 2012. The new UN report found that the GTP per capita has decreased and the provision of health services continue to decline in Gaza. The report said that the electricity supply is as low as 90 megawatts in certain days against the needed 450 megawatts. I see this uh, extraordinarily inhuman and unjust process of strangling gradually 2 million civilians in Gaza that really pose a threat to nobody. I don't know, you know, we talk about the unlivability of Gaza. When you're down to two hours a day of electricity, which is the case uh, earlier this week, when you've got 60% youth unemployment rates, where you really do have such a little horizon, for me and you probably and most of the people watching, that unlivability threshold has been passed quite a long time ago. This was the voice of Robert Piper, the United Nations Coordinator for Humanitarian Aid and Development Activities in the Occupied Palestinian Territories. To talk more about the conditions in Gaza and the political context surrounding the deteriorating humanitarian situation, we're joined today by Jihad Abu Salim. Jihad is a PhD student in history at New York University, originally from Gaza. His research focuses on the impact of the 1948 Nakba or catastrophe on the Gaza Strip. Welcome, Jihad. Talk to us about the situation on the ground. Your family is in the Gaza Strip. How many hours a day do they get electricity? And how are people able to manage with the very limited electricity, internet access? It's summer, the temperatures are in the 90s. What does your family tell you and how do people manage? Thank you, Mira, for having me on the show. I don't know how to begin talking about the situation in Gaza and describing it. It's pretty hard. I left Gaza three and a half years ago when I moved to uh, the U.S. 
And now when I talk to my family, they say that the situation is too dire that even if I go back, I won't be able to relate. This is how much it changed. As for the electricity crisis, my family now, they have access to three hours to six hours electricity a day. If they are lucky, they get six hours a day maximum. Most of the time now, you know, we say three in average because the infrastructure is crumbling and the service is not perfect. So people have access to interrupted services. And you can imagine how life can be under such circumstances. It's summertime, like you said, the high temperatures. Gaza is a very hot and humid place in the summer. It's a city that is located on the Mediterranean Sea. People who have been to cities like Beirut or Haifa or Yaffa can relate to how hard summers are. You can imagine what kids and pregnant women and sick people and elderly and the average people, like what they go through on a daily basis because of the electricity crisis. Think about the food you can't put in the fridge and the water you can't cool and the patients in hospitals and all these things. It's a pretty miserable situation. Let's talk about how we got here. The beginning of the electricity crisis, how did it start? Explain to us how did Gaza normally get its electricity and how did the crisis escalate in the last few months? So basically, Gaza historically had an infrastructure problem. For one reason, it would be the fact that this area that we call the Gaza Strip today. It emerged, it came to life as a product of the 1948 war. And that means that the place itself is a refugee camp. 70% of the people who live in the Gaza Strip are refugees, descendants of people who were expelled from their towns and villages in the remaining of Palestine in 1948. And this led to the creation of a place that has a great number of people but limited resources. And because most of Gaza is composed of refugee camps, infrastructure have always been in a very bad situation. Now, I don't want to take most of the time in explaining the trajectory of that history, but let's talk beginning of the 2000s. With the beginning of the Second Intifada, the numbers of people were growing. There is a growing demand for power and energy The ability of the PA then and the ability of the municipalities in Gaza itself was limited to respond to these challenges. Now, in 2006, following the Gilad Shalit operation, the Israelis started their bombardment campaign by destroying and bombing Gaza's only power plant then. And since then, this power plant hasn't been fully repaired. And with the bombardment of the power plant in 2006, People in Gaza started to feel that electricity is being used as a tool for political blackmail on the part of the Israelis. And with the passage of time, when Israel declared Gaza as a hostile entity in 2007, with the siege becoming harsher, the entities responsible for providing electrical power for people in Gaza have been unable to repair what has been damaged have been unable to add to the ability of the power plant to provide more power to the people of Gaza. And the remaining service that comes to Gaza itself comes through Israel. And the Israelis haven't increased their provision yet. And there is, of course, a limited amount of power that comes through Egypt. So we're talking about a long-term deteriorating situation when it comes to people's access to energy and power. Now, 
imagine that an overcrowded place like Gaza with one of the world's highest population densities and with really bad infrastructure, and here we're talking electricity networks, electricity wires and all these things, imagine how with every Israeli operation that with this massive bombardment of this narrow place with its overcrowdedness, how these networks and such infrastructure gets affected too. So you have different factors. You have to sum it up because it's a very complicated scene. There is dependency, direct dependency on Israel's provision of electricity. There is dependency on Gaza's only power plant or what remained of it. And to operate this power plant, Gaza has to import a special kind of fuel to run the engines of this power plant. And this fuel, the PA pays for it and it comes through the Israelis. So it's still can be used for the sake of political blackmail. And you have the very like limited service that come through Egypt, and you have, above all of that, this deteriorating and crumbling infrastructure that doesn't allow people to have full access to energy. I hope I explained the situation, which is a very complicated one. And in April, the Palestinian Authority said it will stop paying for the electricity that Israel supplies to Gaza through 10 power lines that carry 125 megawatts, about 30% of Gaza's electrical needs. What can you tell us also about that? Like I said, we realized since Israel bombed the power plant in 2006, people in Gaza realized that electricity, like many other basic needs, that they are out of question. A lot of people in the world have been turned into tools of political blackmail. There is beef between the PA and Hamas, and the political division has been going on since 2007. And the PA has been withdrawing the very bones it's been throwing at Gaza over the past 10 years, since 2007. This can be explained based on the changing geopolitical scene in the region, the recent involvement of Mohammed Dahlan in the Palestinian political scene. Dahlan is uh, Mahmoud Abbas's main political rival within Fatah and in the Palestinian political scene in general. And recently, Dahlan has been trying to establish good relations with Hamas based on the fact that Hamas and Abu Mazen have been unable to resolve their differences. Of course, mainly for reasons that have to do with the PA's agenda, which makes it impossible for Hamas to meet such agenda because it only translates into the political suicide of this faction's existence in Gaza. So Hamas and Halan are getting closer and the PA has been trying to punish Gaza. The PA is increasing its complicity in the siege and we can see that through the intentional cut of electric services that come to Gaza and also the 30% cut of PA employees' salaries Mm -hmm. and other measures that the PA recently took. So the electricity payments weren't the only thing the PA cut. Like you mentioned, also the salaries of the civil servants in Gaza were cut by Mm -hmm. 30 to 70%. And then a slash of also funding to Gaza's hospitals and clinics and medical referrals, which I thought is interesting because Gazans do need the approval of the Palestinian Ministry of Health from Ramallah to be able Mm -hmm. to seek treatment outside of the Strip. Most recently, we've heard about the death of a three-year-old little girl, Yara Ismail Bakhit, as a result of this. Can you summarize maybe what does Mahmoud Abbas really want, other than the pressure that you mentioned and the beef with Hamas? What do you think is the reality that Mahmoud Abbas is trying to create in Gaza? (laughs) This is one of the hardest questions to be. I don't know. I have no idea. My speculation is that 
the PA no longer wants Gaza. I think that the stubbornness on the part of the PA with regards to its negotiations with Hamas and also, you know, over the past 10 years and also Hamas had its moment too in terms of when President Morsi was in power, they felt they had leverage. So they put on hold their talks with the PA and Ramallah. But overall, overall, we're talking about a situation where we have two different agendas. Two different philosophies, one in Gaza and one in the West Bank, one is Mahmoud Abbas's and one is Hamas. Those two different philosophies are unable to meet. They're unable to find common ground. Abbas is committed to the peace talks path, to the peace process path. He's committed to maintaining the status quo as is in the West Bank. He's giving a blind eye to the fact that Palestinians in the West Bank are losing more land to settlements. He's giving a blind eye to the fact that Palestinians are getting further and further away from the false promises, which I think of them as false promises of the peace process of establishing Palestinian statehood and sovereignty. The West Bank is no longer a place where Palestinians can enjoy such things. Hamas sees that. Now, Hamas is, of course, its ruling Gaza has been being put under pressure and People in Gaza have been collectively punished for the fact that Hamas is the hegemon there. The fundamental differences between the two parties makes it impossible for them to agree. There is no common ground. Hamas looks at the West Bank and they see that even following such path similar to the one that Abbas took, which is basically the domestication of Palestinians, the suppression of resistance, preventing people from taking any kind of action against the Israelis, except the symbolic and superficial ones, that won't lead to anything. So Hamas holds to the only leverage it has, which is basically its insistence on the fact that armed struggle is the only way for building Palestinian power and preserving it. And the PA, of course, doesn't accept this, doesn't agree with this approach. So I think the problem is that we have two different clashing philosophies and ideas about how to think about the Palestinian situation and how to deal with the question of occupation and liberation. And this takes me to my next question in regards to the responsibility of Israel. We know that for like maybe 10 years now since Israel pulled out of Gaza, Israel and its supporters, and we know here it's a very common line that we hear from uh, Israel supporters in the U.S., that Israel is no longer responsible for the situation in Gaza or for the humanitarian conditions, and it blames it all on Hamas. Do you think this behavior from the PA takes away from Israel's responsibility as an occupying power in the Gaza Strip? No, of course. I think the opposite is true. I think that adds to Israel's responsibility because if we want to talk about how independent the PA as an enterprise, as an institution from the ethos of occupation that exists now and operates in the West Bank, I don't think they're inseparable. I mean, look at the extent of security coordination between the two parties. The PA is doing the Israelis great service in the West Bank by adopting this approach to the domestication of the Palestinian public and also by security coordination, which has proved more efficient than having Israeli troops invading every single house in the West Bank in terms of suppressing Palestinian dissent and resistance. So we look at these things and we can see that there is something going on there. The PA is benefiting from the fact that it's pressuring Gaza, it's adding more insult to the injuries of the people of Gaza, that it's being more complicit in this approach 
that thanks to Israel, of course, it came to being with its logic that revolves around blackmailing civilian innocent people for the sake of achieving political gain. And what the PA is doing cannot be separated from this larger approach that Israel has been following over decades. You come to a civilian population that is an incubator for resistance or approaches that you don't see, you don't deem good for you, and you crush the civilian population. And this is what's basically going on in Gaza. And the PA is complicit with Israel, and this doesn't take from Israel's responsibility. In fact, it does add to the responsibility of the occupier, given that Israel has more leverage over the PA. And in terms of the political moment, there's a lot going on really in the region. There is the Qatar, UAE, Saudi crisis, there's Hamas leaving Qatar, the changes in its charter, the agreement with Mohammed Dahlan, which you pointed out to, a lot going on really. Mm. How can we read the situation on the ground in Gaza in light of the political moment of what's going on in the region? Well, like I said, Gaza now is perhaps one of the places that we will see paying a heavy price for these geopolitical changes in the region. Qatar has been committed to supporting Hamas and to helping the people of Gaza over the past years since the siege started. Regardless of intentions now, I'm just objectively describing the Qatari role. They have been committed to that as part of their general policy in the region, which tended to be pro-Muslim brotherhood. Now, with the Egyptian regime in power, led by General Sisi, who's assaulting anything related to the Muslim brotherhood, I think there is a consensus amongst this newly forming block of what some might describe as a counter-revolutionary bloc, which includes the Saudis, the UAE, and Egypt, to crush resistance, dissent, and forces that might seem for them as threatening their agenda in the region, their agenda which basically revolve around suppressing groups and movements that call for democracy or talk about liberation. The Gulf and Egypt are unhappy with Hamas being a significant branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, a Palestinian faction that has been holding to its leverage, which is basically its ability to engage in armed resistance, and they're unhappy with it. There is an assault on the part of these powers against Gaza, and we can see it translated by the increase, the escalation of Egyptian measures against Gaza over the past few years after General Sisi came to power. The extent of closure and the mistreatment of Palestinians and the demonization of everything Palestinian and the demonization of Gaza on Egyptian media. Mm-hmm. And also now, you know, we're looking on uh, Saudi and UAE social media and we see unprecedented, unprecedented demonization of Palestinians and of Gazans specifically. But there is one interesting thing. The Halan, he works as a security advisor for the Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE. And I think that Mohammed Halan, who's Abbas's main rival in Palestinian politics nowadays, I think that the Gulf realizes that it takes so much to end Hamas in Gaza. So they're trying, I think, through the Halan to politically isolate Hamas, hopefully contain it, and hopefully use it, add it to their proxy forces in the region. No one knows how this will end up. We're watching now and the next few months will bring us answers. And it appears that Hamas, through its new political leader, Sanwar, has uh, met with Egyptian officials, perhaps with Mohammed Dahlan being there, according to some reports in the past few days. So if this supposed deal goes through, there's 
supposedly millions of liters of fuel are expected to enter Gaza and maybe ease a little bit the crisis with the electricity. But finally, going back to the situation on the ground, what do you think is needed to elevate the humanitarian situation? Often Gaza is discussed in the humanitarian terms, devoid from political realities. You've explained, I think, thoroughly what the political context look like, but what do you think is needed to change the situation? And what can our listeners do to help, not just on the humanitarian level, but in terms of creating a long-lasting change and betterment for the lives of people in Gaza? I don't think the humanitarian and the political, especially when it comes to Gaza, can be uh, separated from one another. In fact, isolating the humanitarian from the political leads to the recurrence of such crises in the context of Gaza and in the context of colonized places where that do not take the political into consideration and only look at feeding people and finding them shelter and temporary relief. I don't think Uh, such approaches will put an end to the misery of the people in Gaza. Like I said earlier, the misery of the people in Gaza goes back to 1948. The place itself is abnormal. We have uh, a massive number of people, an ocean of people living in a very tiny, narrow area with no resources, no potential for the reproduction of the basic decent human experiences. This is the problem of Gaza that most people don't get because I don't think there are places in the world, people's imagination cannot rise to a place where it can make sense of what the Gazan experiences. 40 kilometers length, 6 kilometers wide, it's a miserable place. From the roof of my house, if I look east, I can see the armistice border with Israel. If I look to the west, I can see the sea. Gaza is a small prison. And now the humanitarian situation is dire. Humanitarian organizations, including the UN and whatnot, they put so much effort into describing how dire the situation is and how Gaza will become unlivable. In 2012, the United Nations issued a report saying that by 2020, Gaza will be completely unlivable. And this is because there will be lack of important things that people need to survive, like water power, like energy, their ability to secure food and survive. Gaza needs a political solution. Gaza needs urgent humanitarian intervention to put an end to the deteriorating situation. We have 60% unemployment among youth, 40% general unemployment. We're dealing with generations of young people who have never left this place never seen the outside world. We're talking about a society that is experiencing collapse because of poverty, unemployment, and the traumas of war and military aggression. We're witnessing rise in levels of crime and divorce and social uh, problems. So we're dealing with a very hard situation. And I think if the world awaits few more months, I think that we will reach a level where the harm can no longer be undone. I urge your listeners and I urge everybody to think about how the explosion of a place like Gaza with two million people who are desperate for dignity or desperate for their basic rights will look like. I think it will look bloody, it will look miserable. No one knows how the explosion of Gaza will look like. We will witness the hundreds of thousands of people marching God knows to which direction. It's a very, very, very dangerous situation. 
when people lose hope and lose their dignity, no one knows what would become out of such situation. So again, I urge your listeners to educate themselves more on Gaza, but also to take action and to pressure the Israelis, to pressure the PA, and to pressure all the regional forces in the Middle East to get their hands off this place, which has suffered enough, seen enough violence and trauma and suffering. Jihad Abu Salim is a Palestinian from Gaza and a doctoral student in history at New York University. He spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Residents of Gaza, daily life can be a struggle to negotiate amidst isolation and a state of occupation and continuous Israeli assault. Salma Dabbaq's new writing explores these themes through fictionalized characters based on reality in Gaza. Recurring themes of idealism, placelessness, and political engagement define Salma Dabbaq's work. Her first novel, Out of It, follows the internal dynamics of a family living in Gaza. Well, I came at writing the novel from short stories, which is not unlike a lot of writers. And um, this really started off as two things. There was, a, there was an image in my head, which was a, of a young man who was on a roof with a jet fighter flying over him. And he was a bit defiant and a bit stoned and a bit reckless, really. And I didn't really know where he was, but it was just like an image. So that was stuck with me. In 2003, that was the Iraq War. So I kind of felt it could be Palestine, it could be South Lebanon, it could be West Bank, it could be Gaza, it could be Iraq. And then there was a kind of more of an intellectual idea because I had worked a lot on Palestine with human rights organizations, both in the West Bank and Cairo and London. And I've been involved in the, um, the situation there, you know, because I worked before as a lawyer and I'd studied um, the division of Palestinian people and I was how they'd been divided through different laws that had prevented them from forming any kind of national identity in in a way that would be recognized by the international community and as a stateless people so i looked at like the different ways that they held different passports the different types of discrimination that they faced in israel in the west bank gaza and as well as in other arab countries and in diaspora And I thought, well, there's so much dividing us, more so since the peace process, the so-called Oslo peace mm-hmm. process of the 1990s started than ever. What is the thing that kind of holds us together as Palestinian people, whether we're in Detroit or we're in Kuwait or we're in Gaza? And I thought, well, maybe it's this issue of like how angry we get, how involved we get in the political situation when it erupts, because at the time there'd been a really bad attack on Janine. 
and it had really inflamed a lot of a lot you know I was stuck in front of the television all the time and I knew that I wasn't alone there were emails going backwards mm. and forwards with Palestinian friends all over the world so you felt this this thing of like what's your emotional engagement in with this unresolved trauma this situation of injustice that you feel that you're part of that you know about that is misunderstood is it that you feel sold out like a lot of people did in the Gulf which is where I was living at the time or do you feel that it's something you're willing to fight and die for. In your novel, um, you focus on the internal dynamics of a, of a family and how they are trying to negotiate their daily lives as well as their futures from where they are, uh, namely Gaza. And as you said in an interview, I think you described your novel beautifully. You said it presents a state of war, a state of being, a state of pressure, of siege, and I would add myself a state of hope at times in, in yeah. your novel. So how do you explore these connections um, through your characters? Rashid, one of the main characters, has a small-scale marijuana operation in his room, and he's, <laughs> most of the time he's high. Yeah. yeah. And he desperately wants to get out of Gaza, and he has an invitation to do so in London. His twin sister, Iman, he, she has come back from abroad. This is how the novel's narrator describes Iman's situation. This was her lot. This was her life, the life of her father, her mother, her brothers. This was their lot, their country, their place in the world. This was what she had come back for, and it was for her to find a meaningful role within it. At the time, she had decided to join her family in Gaza, there had been change, hope, peace, agreements, agreements that however faulty had enabled what before had always seemed impossible. And then there is the other brother, uh, Sabri, who is paralyzed by a car bomb and lost his family in, in that explosion. So can you talk about how you explored these connectivities and these relationships to Palestine through these characters? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for the question. I mean, first of all, I mean, it was this, I, I wanted to explore this idea, which a friend of mine had once said to me, it's almost like each generation forms a different layer or wave of uh, resistance. And each, each generation is, is bringing, going about it in their own different way. And I was quite interested in a particular section of Palestinian society, which I guess a lot of my friends come from, which you could kind of broadly call the secular left, who mm. were a highly educated, often multilingual um, section of Palestinian society, which are just not very often um, that visible um, in the public eye. I think things have improved since I started writing the book, but at the time, post 9-11, we were in such a state of vilification that we really weren't hmm. visible. So I felt these, this is a group that I'm interested in because they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. They used to be part of Palestine, you know, maybe involved in the Palestine Liberation Organization, like the parents in this family. But with the, the peace process of the 90s, they've both felt um, pushed out of it for different reasons. 
And they had a choice between an authority which was now in power, which was seen to have sold itself uh, in terms of compromise and to be corrupt. And then on the other hand, there were the religious parties, which on a social level they couldn't really relate to. Uh, they didn't have the religiosity and they didn't, for the women in particular, for Iman, didn't like the social constraints. But there was a sort of integrity which was seen that the authority didn't have. So I wanted a family in this in this middle ground. I was interested in this middle ground. And then it was really just like, what are our possible responses? Because it's often sort of put back at Palestinians. Well, what are they done? What are they doing to improve their situation? Mm. So I wanted to say, well, look, you know, here you have these characters. Take some highly educated, well-motivated, well-meaning, hopeful, optimistic, young, brilliant young kids with... And and what would you do in their situation? What can you do? Because you know, I know that world that world fairly well, and that the options are really very limited. So that was part of the exploration. But Gaza, my Gaza in the novel, is is a really very fictionalized Gaza. Mm. I think, like um, James Wood has said, is, is fiction. It's a kind of game of not quite. So it's not quite reality. Mm. It's my kind of. It's my fictionalized world that I drew on a piece of paper, you know, with refugee camp here and school here and house, cafe, border, fence. And I tried to make it, I tried to give it a kind of a slightly higher sense of reality so that I wouldn't have to get pulled into a, a kind of journalistic detail about the situation in Gaza. So who is your main character, Rashid? Because as I said, he does have a small-scale marijuana operation and he calls his plants glory, I believe. And yeah. then he just wants to get out and he repeatedly says in the book that he does not want to be involved in politics. He just wants to get the hell out of mm-hmm. there. Well, I wanted somebody who was like, you know, in Palestinian literature, what I've read of it, you have a lot of characters who are this sort of very dedicated, noble, um, you know, uh, fighter who wants to give himself up for the cause. That that's mm. sort of like an expected hero. And I didn't feel that this was, you know, it's a high expectation to put on somebody, particularly when the political options are not very attractive and the likelihood of them bringing about change is very low. So you've got a character who's rather disillusioned by the options out there who actually is just not a very political, politically motivated character. I mean, in the West, most people in general are not uh, particularly motivated by politics, but in in, in Palestine, we're all, we're all expected to be. It's like our national language. You know, like when I was in Gaza last year, people were saying it's an addiction to talk about politics mm-hmm. here. And the level of analysis is incredibly high. And it's kind of like, what you're just supposed to do is your lifeblood is to be involved in this. And he comes from that kind of family. So he's a, he's a rebel. He's just saying, my rebellion is not to rebel. You know, my rebellion is to actually try to lose consciousness. And so the, you know, the losing consciousness through getting stoned is linked to the idea of being out of political consciousness in terms of his, his desire to commit to the cause. But Throughout the book, you find with him that he really can't escape. You know, it's as hard. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. He cannot escape. He can't escape. Mm. And I find, I mean, to me, to me, it's quite hopeful because I think that he does find a point of engagement. And just that 
point, they both do, but this point of engagement is the important thing. It's not the actual action. It's the idea of being able to be involved on some level to to do something, however small it is. You know, there's, there's this expectation of a, a great, you know, a great act which will change the whole scene. I mean, my characters are not capable of these things. It's just not what I wanted for them. It's just not what the situation could provide for them. But I felt that he did get to a point of saying, there's something I can do, whatever it is, and that's that's enough. Yeah, because at some point towards the end of the book, um, when he goes through certain experiences, really, I mean, ends up in jail and in London, he says... He tells his uh, his friend and his um, uh, sister that he said, I am not like you two or Mama or Sabri or even Baba. I just want out, all right, out of the whole damn thing. When I put all these characters together, Iman, who's come back from abroad, Sabri, who's trying to write, understand the history of Palestine and what has happened to Palestine, um, beginning with the Nakba of 1948, it seems like all of these people represent uh, Palestinian identities, wishes, hopes, despair. These characteristics could represent different facets or aspects of a person. And that's very interesting you should say that. Somebody once said to me that they, he seemed to think they were different angles of my own psychology and mm. my own approaches and I think I probably moved through a lot of the you know a lot of the the responses of the different characters as a sort of impulse in me from you know feeling completely sold out like the dad to feeling incredibly dedicated and to to this role that Sabri has which is this thing of of just bearing witness you know just recording reporting Mm you know, just making a record of what's going on when you feel that the power balance is so stacked against you, you know, to feel that your history is being rewritten all the time. So maybe the thing you can just do is just make sure that you're, you're hanging on to a truth as you know it, because the truth might be taken from you at any point in time. And while you spent some time in the West Bank in your 20s, at the time of writing this book, you hadn't been to Gaza for a decade or so. And as you said, your Gaza is an imagined place, but you give really vivid descriptions of the place uh, you um, hadn't visited for uh, quite a long time. To give an example, I'm going to read a passage from your novel, Out of It. You write, Rashid walked behind Khalil close to the wall, avoiding the slow run of liquid through the middle of the street, wild grasses sprouted around the edges of the puddles. The chemical smell of burnt rubbish came and went. The houses were all the same on this stretch. Two rooms, a bathroom, and a kitchen. Boxy squares of concrete with roofs of corrugated iron held down with breeze blocks and bricks. Occasionally, one had a tiled floor, otherwise it was just sand on the ground and cables and wires strung across the ceiling. So how did you construct, how did you imagine the Gaza that you hadn't visited for so long? And how did that influence the style of your writing, that imagining and writing about Gaza from, from a point of view of, of an exile person? It definitely influenced the style very much because I was... Um, you know, I was almost trying to look at Gaza, I felt through a periscope, like, you know, through the internet, looking at blogs, looking at pictures, looking at, 
YouTube clips, um, trying to sort of draw sketches of pictures I saw. I was trying to pick up on the smells of things that I'd smelt, you know, in down back streets in Bahrain, which is where I was living at the time, or by imagining, remembering things from when I'd been there and from accounts of people who had been in, in war zones, you know, talking about things like smells, for example. So it's all kind of patched together and it it um, made the style, somebody once described it as being a bit impressionistic, which kind of suited what I was trying to do in, in the way that I didn't want it to be a kind of, like I said before, just this kind of graphic description of one particular event in one very, very specific location which people could struggle over. I think people in Gaza, from what feedback I've had, have found it quite... I've had mixed responses. I had one person writing to me saying, my God, you've written this as though you've lived here all your life, which I was quite flattered by. And then somebody else, they get quite thrown by the idea that there might be a cafe and they don't know where that cafe Mm. is. There isn't a cafe like this in Gaza. But to me, there might be a cafe, you know, there are cafes, you know, similar in the West Bank. And so for me, if it's a Palestinian novel, I could put, for the purposes of the type of novel I was trying to write, I could put that West Bank cafe in Gaza. I mean, I know that James Joyce, for example, would do things like when he was in Switzerland, write to people in Ireland saying, you know, that fence on that wall, how high is it? And can you climb over it? You know, that kind of questioning, that kind of detail level to get the exact Dublin he wanted. I wasn't trying to do with Gaza. I was trying to do something else. Did you want your novel to be set in Gaza when you started writing or you thought about writing your first novel? No, I, I mean, like I said, with the image issue, I, I, I really wasn't quite sure where it wanted to, where I wanted to set it, and I'd read some um, short stories by Boliano, um, Roberto Boliano, which were written in a quite in a style where he had actually not given names to some of the characters. He'd called them X and Y, etc. And I'd been playing with the idea of writing a really high a kind of more stylized, high-reality piece where the characters would not have Arab names because I felt that the prejudices against the Arab world were so strong at the time that it would distance people. And I wanted them to come in on a situation and feel a situation through the skin of the characters without being in some way distant. So I did try, I mean, it started off as a short story and it was written in in an unnamed country with characters with X's and Y's as names. But it I don't know, I was quite excited by it and I felt that there was something in it that I, I wanted to be the novel. But when I tried to write it to extend it, mm. I felt this is too this is too suspended. I myself, in terms of my my own particular skill set, I don't think I can pull this off for a longer novel. I need it to come down to bring it down to ground bring it down to the ground it took a lot of redrafting to bring it down and when I decided where it should be the reason it was Gaza was partly because I felt that this was really the extremity of the Palestinian situation just because of the amount of closure control siege um, you know by land sea and air that Gaza's under that this imprisonment and the high refugee population and also the, the youthfulness of the population there you've got half of the population under the age of 16. Because all your characters, except, of course, the parents are young. They're in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. I mean, that was, I really wanted it to have a youthful feel. And even the characters who I put it about, the main characters, Iman and um, um, Rashid, who I wanted to be 
about 27. I, I, they're quite emotionally immature for their age. And I wanted it to be just young characters with a lot of energy. And I made the chapters short for that reason and the sentences short. And I tried to, and the novel starts with someone leaping on a roof mm. and it ends with a run. I wanted this feeling of movement mm. rather than a kind of static vision of a kind of aging conflict. I wanted to, the, the energy of the place to be conveyed. And in your novel, we read about impacts of the occupation on the lives of your characters but you hardly mention Israel, and somebody brought up this issue also with you in an interview. It's invisible, but its presence defines every little aspect of life in Gaza. Was it deliberate on your part not to mention Israel? Well, I try. I also try not to say Palestine for quite a long, long time, or Palestinian, or, or to name things like the Eretz checkpoint. I was trying to keep away from um, direct from the direct terms which would make it immediately to, to, to for the, this reason of trying to keep people off away their prejudices at bay get them into the story get them into the character first and then make them aware as to which which country I'm talking about what place I'm talking about here but partly I mean there are no Israeli characters in the novel because I mean the chances of an Israeli walking through Gaza who would be known to this family on any kind of personal level is is pretty pretty unlikely unless you were going to have some soldiers coming in and I also the main point for me was I felt that a lot of wars occupation and sieges are now being led remotely I mean this was definitely felt in the Iraq war this idea that you have drones which are being operated thousands of miles away sometimes from the point where they are um, actually being used so and and they are so the idea of an external remotely controlled siege where every aspect of your life is sort of on hold waiting for the decisions of people who you cannot influence that was part of the reason why they're depersonalized in the novel I think also I was just quite interested in where we're at as Palestinians you know how are we how are we holding it together how are we dealing with each other um, because by the time I was finishing the novel 2007, there was a lot of internal infighting. And that really scared me. I mean, I just thought that this would really, this was a great concern. And I think it's an enormous credit to, to the people of Gaza that this was, you know, at the time it did not progress. It was held, it was things were held together, not entirely satisfactorily, but it definitely didn't, you know, spiral out of control into some kind of civil war. So it was. There were internal messages in the novel, as well as being about the, the treatment by Israel. It's like the treatment by ourselves is also important, because it's a question when you've been through any process. I think of repression, be it political or personal. You don't want to sort of recreate or reenact the treatment that you were getting. You want to go through some sort of rehabilitation. Um, so I think to take the gaze entirely off us or Palestinians is not altogether responsible. So it was, yeah, it was, it because was maybe a bit of a controversial choice. How has your own family history defined and shaped your relationship with Palestine? You were born in Scotland. Your father is Palestinian and your mother is British. 
I think one thing is I'm always an outsider. I don't really think that I ever fit in entirely anywhere. Um, luckily, there are more and more mixed up uh, multi, you know, international outsiders in this world. So we we're sort of a kind of bit of a group of, of one's own. But I think my father's personal history, because he was hit by, he was very severely wounded when he was 10 years old. He came from um, Jaffa and he was, there was a grenade attack on a group of children that he was with and he was almost killed. And that, that act led to the, the family, the, the wider family, um, leaving uh, Palestine to, to the West Bank firstly and then on to Syria. Um, thinking that they'd be back when the fighting died down within a week or so, but never returning. And that act, that sort of one thing of, you know, having to leave his country on a stretcher was something very, is something very, very strong in my father's psyche and in his emotional response to the situation there. And our awareness of Palestine was very strong as children and growing up. I grew up in Kuwait where there was a very large Palestinian population, um, you know, okay, relatively very privileged um, and quite a politically active uh, Palestinian population, all of whom were expelled in 1990 with the first Gulf War. And when that happened, my father was um, trapped in Kuwait. And I think for me, 1990 was more of a kind of uh, political coming of age. You know, I was, I was very angry by the way that, things evolved and I think that also that feeling of politics and actually entering your home is 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 quite a shocking one and of also our vulnerability or Palestinians vulnerability as people because my wider family were all all left to sort of you know make new start new lives for themselves in Jordan that was also another realization for me and then I started getting involved with um human rights work and um, my work as a lawyer, I started working in the West Bank with a human rights organization, but I couldn't work there for very long because I left after three months and then I wasn't, I was denied re-entry twice. So I had to work in Cairo instead. And then I continued, you know, working in actions against the police in the UK, working with mainly black communities here. And I think that in terms of my mother's, the heritage I've had from my mother's, my parents are both quite, I would say, you know, definitely left wing. And I think there's an idea of commitment to your society and trying to leave, you know, we're not religious as a family, but that idea of trying to leave the world a better place than you came into it came through very strongly from my mom, mm. as well as my father. So Because yeah. you, you said again in an interview that your father carried Palestine in 1948, Nakba, like an unresolved hurt. Yeah, yeah. No, it still is. And I mean, every time there's an attack, it brings it all to the fore again. It's like, um, I think he gets particularly upset about kids being hurt. It's just not, yeah, it's an unresolved. It's a it's a continuing injustice that he, he feels. And I think for his generation in particular, there's this feeling that if you could just tell the story, if people understood, if people knew the history of how your country had been erased, that that it wouldn't have happened, that this would stop. He's got a great faith in the understanding of the West. Uh, well, he had. I think he's very much encouraged by how many more people know and understand about Palestine now. 
How old is your father? He's 73. I mean, I think it was very hard for him when he first came to the UK. And actually, when he met my mum, my mum was even, everybody was, you know, going. They felt that Israel was a great new world. You know, that this was a fantastic um, era for building this new sort of socialist leftist enterprise. And a lot of idealistic people were going there. I think my mum, when he met him, had even considered going on a kibbutz. It was just that was what people were of, of that wow. persuasion. He found it very frustrating to have to, you know, try and explain his existence and his history and his, yeah. So I think the idea of writing, explaining was, was big, but it was quite, quite difficult for me writing this novel because I didn't, you know, I felt that there was this expectation to sort of explain everything. And I felt I can't explain everything within a, the form of a novel. All the novel can do is tell one piece of the story. And hopefully if it makes characters alive enough, the readers will go off and, and find or find non-fiction sources or other novels which fill in the gaps. But I felt it, it just felt too heavy and almost a bit gratuitous. Your characters have conflicting relationships, especially Rashid, with Brits who are involved in Palestine cause. For example, Lisa, Rashid's sort of girlfriend, is very patronizing towards him. And he later confronts her saying, of course, you don't have time for this. You only have time for the brown and the destitute victim types, isn't it? You do what? The politically repressed only? I do not know why it took me so long to see it. So um, she sees him really only as a project to further her own political credentials. What does Lisa's character meant for you? Because we see her presence throughout the book, more or less. Well, it's a danger when you write a novel that you have one character from a particular milieu and then and then they're, they're seen as being representative of everybody uh, within that type of community. And I really had, had no intention to in any way denigrate the solidarity campaigners mm-hmm. or movement. The reason that, that Lisa is quite as unlikable as she is and the reason is because I wanted this idea that Rashid could not escape from his Palestinian identity, that it was something that was pushed back at him even when he left the country. I mean, he was interested in music. He was interested in, in, you know, in jazz and going out to concerts. He wanted to do other things with his life and his freedom other than just politics, but that he kept facing it. And this was something which came, which is why I presented Lisa as unsympathetically as she is. But I do think that, you know, with political causes, it's very interesting. You know, you get incredibly noble, selfless people attracted to causes who do amazing work. But you also get some people attracted to them for other probably less admirable and more personal or more sort of self-seeking reasons. And sometimes, you know, a political hurt can be adopted as a, as a more acceptable way of expressing yeah, a particular personal hurt with life, and you get some, you get interesting characters, definitely. And she's just an interesting character. But I, you know, I sometimes give readings on this book, and I get to pieces about Lisa, and I look out in the audience, and I think, oh my god, you know, they're not, they're going to think I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm, you know, I see sort of women from solidarity movements. I think, oh god, no, I don't want them to 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 feel that I'm in any way undermining them or where they're coming from. It's just Lisa was who Lisa was. You visited Palestine when your book was already out. So how did your imagined Gaza matched with what you saw when you were there recently, a couple of years ago, I believe? 
Yeah, I went with uh, the Palestinian Festival of Literature in uh, May 2012. We went from Egypt um, with Ahdaf Suef and um, a lot of um, the uh, Egyptians who'd been very involved in the Egyptian um, revolution in Tahrir. So it was a very sort of jubilant time to go with a... You know, we were actually called the um, Egyptian, <laughs> we were called the, rather than the Palestinian Festival of the Literature, it was just the sort of in Egyptian contingent. But um, it was, I was quite worried about seeing Gaza because I, I was worried that I might have got it wrong. And actually when I went there, I was quite pleased, not in a, in a strange way, I felt, no, I, I've got it, that issue's here and that issue, and I was sort of doing a mentally ticking off points that I felt might be the case. Um, but occasionally I talked to somebody who was particularly like the students, which are so buzzing with energy and questions and ideas, and, you know, you felt, God, maybe my novel was just a bit too bleak, I didn't get the energy level right, I didn't get the optimism and the braininess and the... I didn't get that. And then sometimes you'd hear some particular political dimension to the situation there or some particularly, you know, like a, an explanation of quite how claustrophobic it all is, has become, you know, and how dark Gaza is at the moment because there was no electricity. The generator had been bombed. And then I think I got it wrong. I was too... I was too optimistic. This is much, much worse than I imagined it to be. So there was a question of tonality I sometimes thought I got wrong. But as sort of central issues, I didn't feel I'd been irresponsible with anything. And that was a very important test for me. I think I felt I got the sense of it. I got the sense of the place. But it's it was definitely a much darker place on, on, on many levels than I'd, I'd painted it as being. But it was also... That's partly because of what had happened since when I wrote the novel Operation, what they call Operation Cast Led, the attack in 2008, 2009, hadn't happened. But I have events in that novel which I put in there which came from what had happened in Janine, for example, like a bombing of a hospital. But by, you know, the end of Cast Led, you know, these things had happened. So it was a sort of, there was a, I suppose, maybe closer to the place in my novel than when I wrote the novel. Selma Dabor is a British-Palestinian writer of fiction based in London. I spoke with her about her debut novel, Out of It. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.